Hello, everyone, and welcome to another educational podcast on Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. And today, we have with us again my awesome, lovely, and MIA co-host, Deborah Micus. How are you doing today? Good. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. It's actually, I just caught something before I introduce Lisa on, on this. I just caught something. I noticed, you know, Zoe goes MIA to the gym every day for like six or seven <laughs> hours a day. And I was like, ah, oh, where does she get that from? Well, now I just realized where it came from. MIA on the podcast over here. She's goes MIA for like episodes at a time. It happens. <laughs> it gets busy. So today, um, on this educational piece, we have Lisa Harris with us again. She's the director of regulatory compliance for food service partners who, um, who we all work for. And last time we discussed labeling. So if you're interested in labeling, go back an episode. We, we talk about labeling in detail. We didn't have Deborah with us, so she'll probably have to go back and listen to the labeling <laughs> one yes. as well. But Lisa, sort of give us a quick background again on you and how you got into regulatory compliance and then we'll sort of jump into today's episode which is about packaging well as i said um on the earlier podcast um i've I've sort of always been the person that's been I, i hate to say jack of all trades and master of none but i'm always there to fill the need so when companies that i work for and i love fsp when companies that i work for say we have a need for somebody to know how to do this and to get this done. Sometimes or many times that turns out to be me. So I can, I like to learn and I learn how to do what needs to be done. And then I share the knowledge as fast as I can with as many people so that everybody can understand what we need to do. And when FISMA um, really started to hit and, and people needed to be in compliance, FSP came and said, can you find out, figure out what's going on with FISMA and make sure we're in compliance? And so that's how I started, well, that, in, on this point of food safety. I did do it earlier as well, again, filling a need. Well, so. and, and one of the things I want to sort of talk about, uh, Lisa, that I think is really true to you and, and why you make a good regulatory compliance person is I think that you are cautious by nature, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't think it's true in, in every part of your life. But I think when it comes to work, you're extremely cautious and, and you really explore all the rabbits down every rabbit hole, which makes you a good person for the position. So I think if anyone's really looking for a regulatory compliance person in their business, I mean, the willingness for you to, to, to stand up, number one, I think is a great quality to, to what you believe in and you think is important to the company from a regulatory compliance. So aka no one dies but it's i think that your your sort of cautiousness and willingness to see problems uh before they happen is a huge you know a great quality that a person should possess in your position i mean what do you think (laughs) i never really thought about it that way but i think you're right you may have pegged me in a way it's good when it's interesting when people who know you see you in a light that you never (laughs) really see yourself Right. But I can give you a quick little funny story on that. One time when I was working in airline catering, I was in my late 20s. I was a mature in my late 20s. And I had this guy working for me that was in his early 20s. And and he was really, like, you know, fun-loving. And he was on a wheelchair at the end of the jet bridge trying to pop wheelies. 
And <laughs> he had worked for the, the airline that we were there with before. There was no plane. The plane had pulled away. So it's just an open drop down to the ground. And he, <laughs> the other employees that worked for the other company were popping wheelies. And he got in the chair to do it. And I said, get out of that chair. And he said, why? I said, because I never let anybody do when I'm responsible. Nobody does something that I can't explain later why I let you do it. All I was right. like, and I can never explain to anybody later why I let you <laughs> pop wheelies in a wheelchair <laughs> over an open opening on the end of a jet bridge. It's, anyway, yeah, it is true. I mean, Justin. good time to do cautious. that. Well, I would say the other thing with working with Lisa is, I mean, sometimes, Lisa, your job, in my opinion, is tough. Not only, like, the intricacies of all that you have to know, but also, I mean, you kind of have to stand up to everyone at times, you know, because we have you know, a client, let's say that comes to us and they're wanting us to produce a product and they're used to producing it in whatever way that they do it and has been a smaller scenario. But when you do it into a commercial kitchen like ours, the regulations change and somewhat dramatically. And so, you know, we're all sitting here trying to push this product into production and Lisa has to stand up to everyone and be like, no, like we can't do it this way. And so, and not only that, but you would then also have to like turn on your creative ability to look at what all of the regulations are to figure out how we actually can do it in a way that works for our scale and whatnot. And so I just, I mean, huge props to you because your job is tough and, um, you know, it takes definitely a certain person to do it and you're really good at it and you do it with, I think just also amazing way of being factual and, you know, not confrontational because it can get a little intense at times. And so you do a great job. Thank you. It is challenging because I sometimes I'm seen as the no person and I need to find a new way sometimes to communicate that. I don't necessarily mean no. I just mean there are many other factors and tweaks we need to make before it could be a yes. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Well, and I think it's it's in a business and, and what I've learned through understanding it because I, I will admit that I can see how a lot of people say no, but then you understand that it's not no, it's just that we need to take a few steps backwards, think about how we can execute this within the parameters that we're given. And it's sort of the way the U.S. government is set up, right? We have an executive branch, a judicial branch, and, um, God, why is, what's the heck's the other branch called? The one that run the Congress. What is that called? Anyway, that's terrible that I don't know it. It says a repres... What is it? Legislative. Legislative. Thank Good you. Good job, Lisa. Legislative Welcome. branch, the judicial branch, and the executive branch. Wow. <coughs> I'm like, I got to really go back and look at my U.S. government classes. But it's one of those things that in a business, I think it's the same way. You have to balance the business development or R&D in your business with the operations and then the operations with the um, regulatory compliance. And all of them need to have a balance in the way things move forward because you know, your business development, you want to please the client and you want to move forward and you want to bring in more business. And, and so your money ge- generated operations is, is trying to excel at getting the product out efficiently and as best as possible. And then you have regulatory compliance that is trying to make sure that they represent both sides, which is the quality and, you know, doing it properly so no one dies. So it's not rushed and, and, you know, also having to say, hey, we need to slow down on the efficiency piece in operations to make it healthier or less 
dangerous if there's any danger or limiting the danger i should say because it doesn't start off dangerous we usually create that as human beings in some cases unless it's some outside bacteria but um we have ways to control it is my point and then from a business standpoint we have to then push back on the client to set expectations on timelines because there is extra steps that need to take place so I'm off on a tangent again, but it's, um, but it's important but you know, that we you bring understand up a good that. point. There was a broker that I spoke to recently that was asking us to bring something to market in three weeks, a brand new product that we don't have the right equipment for. And there was a, a new ingredient that we would have to source. Um, and so all those things, you know, change your speed to market. And they were talking about the fact that uh, there's a lot of clients that are, as you can get faster, as we get faster bringing things to market, then that becomes an expectation, which, you know, sometimes you can bring things to market quickly. If you have all the equipment and you have those ingredients and you have all that sourcing of and vetting of your suppliers done, you know, it's a it's an item already in use. It goes faster. If you have something that you have to get internationally and has to go through customs and it's something you've never done before with someone you've never worked with, you know, that slows your time to market. No, I agree to that. And I actually, you know, just, I think at, when I was younger and more, I don't less understanding and, and less life experience, you just want to push things through as fast as possible and make as much money as you can as quickly as possible. So I get the entrepreneurial mindset that you want to push the thing to market as fast as possible. But what I've also come to understand is that if you push it to market too fast and it doesn't meet quality and it doesn't mean safety and it doesn't meet all those things, you're just shortening the life of your business because you're going to go, you're going to take a quick spike up into the atmosphere and and have sales and things like that. But you're also going to hit the ground really hard because you didn't follow the steps that you should have done at the beginning and didn't put the proper you know, mechanics in place or steps in place or standing operating procedures in place or, or right safety plans in place. And they eventually catch up with you. I mean, I think that every food business we've seen that has, or beverage business that's really gone down the tubes or, or factory, they, they got lazy or they try to rush something to market too quickly without taking the proper precautions or even some cases cared more about the money than actually the safety of the product. So I think it is important. And I think as a business, we've, we've really started to learn that over the last year is that we just need to slow down. Yes, we want to co-package your product. Yes, we want to hit your timeline, but here's actually what's realistic based on what's going on from a safety standpoint, from a production standpoint. And ultimately, it is beneficial for them to have a higher quality product that's safe. You know, right. so. And as we're talking about packaging, that that feeds into that as well. You know, a lot of times when, we're, when you're talking about food entrepreneurs and we're sort of that next step above where you found something or a product that you really like and you're beginning to get backing and it's getting some exposure and you're getting more business and you're not big enough to build your own plant yet but you are to the part where you're going to grow to the next level. You know, some people are starting businesses out of their garage or their home kitchen or a share kitchen, and they fall under different regulations. But the other thing is, too, sometimes these people aren't centered in food. It's more they have an idea, and everyone thinks they know food because everyone eats food. And so sometimes they're innovative because they say, ooh, I can do this this way, 
but they're not necessarily thinking of it from a food safety point of view. And packaging does have a lot to do with that. You'll remember we had a, a client come to us one time that wanted to have something that they said, oh, it was cutting edge packaging for this item. But it was a packaging that I had never seen before for that type of item. And I said, why do we never see this item in this packaging? Is there a reason for that? And I had to do the research with a dairy expert to find out whether or not you could package it because a glass jar would be an anaerobic environment, meaning no oxygen. So if, if it's always packaged a certain way and all of a sudden you change the packaging, it's something to consider, not just, ooh, I can do it this way because it looks pretty for the end consumer and I want it to sell a lot off the shelf, but you should really know, is it safe to put it in that package? It might not be. Yeah, and I and I want to talk about that because like we're seeing some changes in that as well in the way people do it and packaging and and all that. And I, I you know I want to ask you, Lisa, but I also want to state something. Like we see containers a lot as a packaging, but something that we're starting to see more, at, at least that we've seen particularly in and some of the chilies and soups and stuff like that as well. It comes in a container. When you open up the container, those soups and sauces and chilies are actually in a pouch that you cut open and then open in the container to use. And they're putting it in pouches instead of the containers. But why is that a better system? I, I, because it is a packaging thing. And people are like, well, that's weird. Why not put the thing right into the container? But I think getting an understanding of why pouching is so important versus going straight in the container is an, is an interesting question. Well, a lot of times why companies are doing that, I will say for two reasons. A big one is shelf life. Um, It's much easier, you know, when they're doing that packaging, they're almost always doing a form fill and a hot fill package, or they're doing a map with that. And so map means that they're modified atmospheric packaging. So they're putting like nitrogen or another gas in the package in order to keep the product um, fresher and give it a longer shelf life or they're doing it ROP, reduced oxygen packaging, where they pack it hot in that little bag, and then as the steam escapes, that also makes it so that all the anaerobic bacteria can't grow, which anaerobic bacteria would be bacteria that needs oxygen to grow. And so then that way you don't have all those growing in your product, and your product gets a longer shelf life. On the other side, you have to make sure that you control um the anaerobic bacteria, which is the bacteria that doesn't need oxygen to grow. And so that packaging can become uh, dangerous for those. You'll notice like on if you ever buy raw fish from in the grocery store and you know how if you get like you get those individually cryovac fish that each fish is individually frozen, the raw fish. Right, right. You know, back in the day, and it has a bigger outer bag that has the labeling on it. And you take one of those little fish out. If you look on the inner bag, the inner bag is going to say, take this fish out of the package before you defrost it. And it didn't used to say that, but the reason why it says it is because there can be anaerobic bacteria in with that fish. And if you put that fish in your home refrigerator and you leave it in there for a week or 10 days or or if your refrigerator isn't below 40, you know, sometimes home refrigerators are running too hot. If it's not below 40 and if it's in there too long, you can put bacteria in there that can develop toxins that you can't cook out of the product. So even if you cook the fish all the way, like you cook it really well done, it doesn't matter because you can't get rid of the toxin. And so that's why they're telling you because 
it's a food safety factor. So on that point, Lisa, and I just I want to touch upon this because we're starting to see in the grocery stores more and more that these individually packaged fish, IQF or individually quick frozen, however it is. Um, I don't know if that's what the classification is actually now that I just said that. But they're vacuum sealed, meaning they pull a hard vacuum on them. And I, I think that might be what you're talking about, cryovac. But right. why, why switch to, I mean, because it is different now. They're actually vacuum sealing them on the plates and with, it's not styrofoam anymore. They're using like wood planks and cardboard. And cardboard. But it's um, in some cases, depending on the fish and how fragile it is. But does that eliminate that? Can they, because I agree with you, what happens is people think it's vacuum sealed or cryovac, that it's sealed and nothing bad can happen to it. So I can sit it in my refrigerator and it can sit there for like weeks and nothing bad's going to happen to it because it's vacuum sealed, but that's not true. Right. So with the fish, which I'm going to think if you're talking about it being on a plank, you're going to talk about maybe the salmon. Yep. And I don't know if you mean the raw versus the smoked. I'll say that there was a lot of food safety issues that happened with smoked salmon, that people weren't following the seafood guidelines appropriately. With smoking salmon, there's a bunch of different factors like salinity and the smoke and the time and the temperature. Um, it's not just like a cooking temp where you have to hit 165 and you're done. There's lots of, there's like, I think there's three safety factors that they're trying to hit um, in order to make sure that that fish is safe in that vacuum pack package. If you, if anybody wants to go look, there were quite a few that um, botulism was the, was the issue. So again, with that seafood, when, um, on the other hand, on a raw piece of meat, Many times there's so many competing bacteria that it's not too much of a safety factor when it's cryovac because the, it'll start to go bad before the, the toxins that you can't tell are there are there. So um, there's different levels of things. But a lot of times with the fish, when you, you'll see it frozen for the longer shelf life. And again, um, I've seen those ones on the board too, and I've been looking at them and wondering exactly how they're doing that. Um, another thing to think about when you're talking about that, that packaging is whether or not it's a high barrier plastic or whether or not it's got an oxygen transfer rate. So again, when you see those bag salads or if you see different things, you know, if you, if you certain things like all the produce and everything, there's those cells are still alive, even though we've cut them and chopped them and washed them, they're still alive and they're breathing. And so it keeps them fresher. If you allow the oxygen to go into the bag, it'll spoil. It, it takes longer for it to spoil. But if you put something like a high barrier plastic and you put lettuce in it, it'll go bad pretty quickly because the lettuce basically suffocates and dies. So, you know, Lisa, you bring up uh, vegetables and bags and stuff, and we're starting to see more and more of that in the grocery store. And so, I mean, I, people, I feel like a lot of times it's not clear to people. And so maybe you can explain when it's okay to eat it's fresh out of the bag and when it's not, when it needs washing. Is it as simple as it's stated on the, la on the packaging or is there more to it? I would say it is as simple as it's stated on the packaging because... Again, there's there can be a lot of harmful bacteria on produce. Salmonella is pretty big in, in fresh produce, and there are others. Um, there can be E. coli. You know, we've seen breakouts of E. coli in fresh spinach. A lot of those bad 
produce that you see, like the fresh cuts or even the bag produce that says you don't have to wash it or it says triple washed, that is literally what it is. So the produce company has, a lot of times they use a chlorine wash, but not always, but, um, and it's a very small amount of chlorine that is safe. It doesn't just stay on the produce, but there's all regulatory compliance for that. But the produce is washed to a point where it makes it so the product is safe. And then again, a lot of the produce companies, when they're making it for the bigger draw, they'll even test the finished product to make sure that it's testing negative for salmonella before they even release the produce. Um, and so you've got you've got a few different ones in there. But I would say any produce that, that you buy would definitely, you would want to wash it. Um, well, a lot of people, when they really know food safety well in your home, you can just do like a vinegar and water wash. Um, anybody that's really immunocompromised, especially things like cantaloupes, um, you definitely want to do like a vinegar wash on the outside of your cantaloupe before you cut it. Just there, there is safety to do there. But when you're buying it pre-washed, they have food scientists that know produce very well, and they're making sure that they have killed that bacteria on the produce. And that's Can watermelon and everything. Well, yes, but cantaloupe is the cantaloupe is like sprouts. I mean, they're they're more volatile than many others. That cantaloupe skin um, it tends to hold that bacteria. So if you cut through a skin that has bacteria on it, then you basically contaminate all the cantaloupe inside. So it, the other melons can be, but the cantaloupe the cantaloupe is more the you know when one to focus on maybe not that you shouldn't do it for all, but I'm saying even in your home, you, you might want to do that one. Another thing too, on the produce department, I wanted to bring up under packaging that people will notice, but they maybe not were conscious of why it was that way. If you've ever seen um, mushrooms, you know how mushrooms come in those little baskets and then they have the plastic over top. If you notice there's a bunch of little holes in the plastic um, that is a regulatory compliance thing because mushrooms have an issue with botulism as well. Clostridium botulinum, and if you covered it completely in plastic and sealed it, um, you could grow the toxin in there if you left them out on the counter. So, um, which people would think you could do, and so they make it so that air can flow freely in and out. And because that dangerous toxin is an anaerobe, it can't form the toxin because there's air in there. You'll notice too, I don't know if you've seen recently, it used to be always asparagus was packed with those purple rubber bands around it right. and free by itself. All of a sudden recently in the grocery store, I'm seeing a bag that like is reclosable, but again, it has those same holes. So the size and the distance of the hole is regulated to make sure there's enough airflow um, to make sure that you can't grow a toxin in there. So when, if you ever see those in the grocery store and you see those holes, it is there to help the asparagus breathe, but that is actually a food safety factor. Well, so let's back up a second, Lisa, because I've actually seen a lot of people do this. Is they get the mushrooms, they use a couple, then they put it in a Ziploc bag and back in their refrigerator. So that's a, a bad idea is what you're saying. So, but here's the thing. You put it in a refrigerator. Ah, uh, okay. Right? So, Clostridium botulinum likes to have certain things. One is no oxygen. And the other one is a temperature. So it grows really fast above 70, um, but it won't grow. I want to say it's 40 and below, but I can't remember just off the top of my head where it is. Some of them have a little bit different exact number. So but there's, as long as it's, go ahead. No, no. So there's really no ideal packaging for fruits and vegetables overall. It actually depends on the individual species. 
absolutely absolutely or maybe the category like you know melons or berries or you know lettuces but absolutely it depends on the type of produce that it is there isn't one that goes for all um and you do have to keep that in mind about food safety i mean you might be a farmer and and you love to grow whatever it is and you've got a whole field full of it but if you never brought it to market before, it, that's not a time you want to be innovative with your packaging. That's a time you want to look and see what everybody else is doing and see if there's a reason why they're doing it that way. So, Lisa, when you see, let's say you go to the grocery store and you're in the produce section, you know how the grocery store, they use the little styrofoam plates and then they slice different produce and they put it on there and they saran wrap it and they put it on the shelf. And so is that because are they under different regulatory compliance than, say, a big manufacturer like ourselves or, you know, and then do you need different care with that type of product than you would something that's prepackaged from like a big Dolmonte or something? It is different because a grocery store would fall under the state's retail food code um, that falls. They usually follow the states, follow the FDA food code. um, And then usually the states adopt most, if not all, they might have a little tweak here and there. But the grocery store falls under that regulatory compliance, whereas a larger manufacturer shipping to different parts of the country would fall under FSMA or would fall under the USDA. Um, and so there, there is a difference in what is allowed and what isn't allowed. Again, you've got the refrigerator there, um, and there are laws to follow that, that they need to follow. So there is a, that's also a thing, too. You need to know who you fall under and what regula- regulations you have to follow. I mean, you always want to be as best as you can be. Usually cost is a factor there. And so some, sometimes you want to do just what you have to do. Um, but in general, you're always trying to do the best that you can. But on the other side, there's different regulations for different, you know, ready to eat items that are sort of a grab and go that you make out of a grocery store versus what a manufacturer would do. And I think all of it has to be refrigerated, right, Lisa? Once you compromise it, and by compromise, I mean once you manipulate it from its natural form, it has to be refrigerated, even if it's wrapped in the styrofoam. Yeah, all the fruit and vegetables has to be refrigerated once it's cut. And cut tomatoes. Cut tomatoes are another high-issue one. You would think maybe not so much because of the acid, but cut tomatoes are, they they used to consider it... um, I can't, they call it TCS now, like time and temperature to control the food safety, but they, oh, potentially hazardous food, they used to call it PHF, so tomato, cut tomatoes, you know, you can leave a fresh tomato on the counter, and by the time it goes bad, usually that's one, you know, a symbol for you, if it's looking bad, it might not be safe to eat anymore, and and they sort of go hand in hand, but sometimes with other packaging that you do, or other things that you do, it might still look safe, but it might not be safe anymore. So once you cut your tomatoes, they definitely go in the fridge. It's because a lot of people put, right. Okay. And so for you as a consumer who has this knowledge, if you are, let's say in the grocery store and you buy the stuff that's sliced and diced by the grocery store versus by a, a big company, do you take different care with it in your own kitchen or you do the same care to it as you would other things, other products that you're buying from bigger manufacturers? That's a good question. I would say in general, um, I'm always cognizant of food safety. I sort of can't stop myself. Right. Um, I'm big at washing my hands. I'm big at not cross-contaminating in my own kitchen. 
And I'm also big about not going and buying refrigerated food and then making four more stops at other grocery stores. I mean, I live in Orlando, Florida. It's hot here. You cannot leave groceries that are intended for the refrigerator in your car very long. Now, good manufacturers, when they're doing what they should, plan for some abuse. And they plan for a little bit of abuse in how they design the safety of their item. And what I mean that way is like, if you have a fruit juice, they might have it be a little bit more acidic than maybe it would have, was initially in the initial R&D, just to make sure that it could withstand a little bit more abuse in your car. But a lot of times an hour above 70 is a bad thing. Um, and then it, so and especially if it's something you're going to keep for a long time or move in and out. I mean, if you're going to eat it right away, it's not going to have time to grow. Right. But um, well, and I want to talk say, about I trust that. the grocery stores. They do have regulations and I've seen lots of grocery stores doing things well. So um, but they may not and they might be doing a really good produce wash on it in the back. But I know the bigger manufacturers are. So, right, right. And I definitely want to talk about that because it's something that we walked through as a company. We went from literally serving food, we produce food today, it go out tonight, it be consumed tomorrow or even the day after in the hospital. So there wasn't a lot of time for things to go wrong. But then as we got into retail, one of the discussions we we started to having to have and things we had to change in the culture of our business was taking into consideration just that. It's just, we could do everything right. We could follow every standard operating procedure there was in our company and put out a product. But what we weren't doing was considering what a person in the retail market or once they bought it, what abuse they could put on the product. Because most likely, to, to your point, is food gets abused in some way, whether it accidentally gets set on our counter because the, you know, the kid starts crying or, you know, it's in a car and, you know, you got at the bank and your phone rings. So you're now sitting in the hot car with the windows down with the groceries in the back, trying to get your cell phone. So you don't drive with the cell phone. So there's all these things that we, we don't even think of in ways that we abuse food as consumers, but you have to take it into consideration as a manufacturer because it's going to happen. And I think that's been one of the biggest learning curves and understanding for me in, in this regulatory compliance space is that it's not, it has less to do with what we do. We can do everything right, but what we really have to consider is what is the consumer going to do and what right. accidents can happen and what unknowns. And you'll never think of all of them, obviously. But it's good to really try to capture the big ones when you're doing packaging. It's not just about shelf life. It's not just about how good it looks in the packaging. It's also about what can it withstand if it's put through some extreme things. You know, it's like... Absolutely. That's called reasonably likely to occur. So if something is reasonably likely to occur, you'd want to make plans for that. So... So let's talk about something else. We do a lot of soups and sauces and, and things like that as well, Lisa. And we talked about hot fill bags. So, you know, we talked about, or let me take a step back. If it comes to fruits and vegetables and people are manufacturing fruits and vegetables raw or fruits and vegetables that are manipulated, meaning they're not in their raw form anymore, they're cut or whatever, that doesn't mean cooked. I mean that when they get cooked, that goes into a whole other process. But I mean, they really have to know the product that they're trying to bring to market and what's best for that product. I think 
that's what you're saying is that each individual species of fruit and vegetables need to really be identified. And once you manipulate it, that adds a different step of how to package it and stuff like that from a safety standpoint. Absolutely. It was interesting too. I, I did a class one time um, in Wisconsin and it was about freezing and refrigerating. And one of the things that the instructor said was that, you know, I hope you know the amount of water content in your product. And if you don't, shame on you. You know, and, and again, somebody starting out as a food entrepreneur may not think about or may not even know what's the water content of my product. But that will affect um, the freezing of your product. You know, the, there's certain, the density of your product, there's lots of things um, to think about that will affect what happens to your product and how well it performs and how safe it is. Yeah, and I, I think that I agree with that. So let's talk about the next thing, which we sort of I started on, which is like soups and sauces and things like that. And sauces, I know everyone wants to package them in containers and things like that. But is that ultimately the safest way to do it? I mean, we've seen them go through high pressure processing procedures and things like that. And we're really diving into the weeds. It's a very large topic. But I mean, if you were to do it, I mean, what would be your ideal packaging for products like those? Um, I honestly can see two sides to that. If you want to talk about, you know, cupping a soup that's going to sit on a shelf in a grocery store, that packaging looks very nice. You can hot fill that and get um, a reduced oxygen package in that and have an extended shelf life. It really depends on the formula of your soup. Does it have a lot of acid or water activity or salt? Those things will affect the safety and the shelf life over, you know, the period. Are you wanting to put like a natural preservative in, in there that actually makes the food safer as time goes on? Um, so there, there are a lot of things to consider with that. Um, and, and that can be a good thing. In an operations side, it's more expensive to do it that way. Um, it takes a lot longer to sit there and fill that cup than it does to fill the bag. It takes a lot more space to store and ship all those cups. It takes a lot more space to refrigerate and actually like cool, chill those cups once they're hot. Um, it, it may not seem that way, but just there's so much void in between those cups that um, it, it just takes more space. Than, than a package would. And so when you're trying to save costs and save money, the package is the packet or the, the flexible bag is so much more affordable um, than the cup. Well, and one of the things I also think, Lisa, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, while it does lead to more shelf life, I, I think it's probably safer when we're talking about, and I don't remember the exact term, it's the most likely to occur whatever that phrase was um it, which i want you to repeat just so we get it down but it's i mean that's where the abuse i mean it's sealed it's safe there's no if the bag punctures you know there's a hole in it i mean i i'm not sure where i'm going with this but i in my gut i feel like it's safer when it's in a bag just based on my own experience well, even just, you know, a lot of times when we're talking about food safety and, and the concern in the world today can is a lot of times is listeria. I know a lot of people have heard that, which comes from the environment. And the more times that a, a product touches a surface, 
or any surfaces, it doesn't matter what it is, it's just more chances for something to go wrong, right? So if you shake a lot of hands, you're more likely to catch a cold. And that's what it is every time your product touches another surface. So when you think about the cups, um, it, you know, each one of those cups is its own individual surface that has a chance to maybe become contaminated. However, um, the film is rolled upon itself. And so there, it's really sealed off to the world. So, I'm, you know, I'm not saying it's unsafe to have the cups, but there's just that slight, slight more of a chance, I would think, just because, say, something fell into the cup before um, the product went in there versus nothing could possibly fall into that bag as it's forming on a bagger. Yeah. It's, you know, thinking. No, I agree with that. So let's let's quick go on to the next thing. If I mean, we do a lot of meats, so chicken and beef, and and some seafood here and there, um, you know, and pork and things like that. So, what ultimately is the best way to package it raw, and what is the best way to package it after it's been pre cooked or or things like that? And is it better to send it frozen or fresh? And and sort of, how do you feel about all of that? <laughs> Well, that that's a lot there, uh, Justin. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there's just there there's so many different factors there. It would be hard for me to give a fully comprehensive answer to that. But I will say, one healthcare client that we worked with never purchased refrigerated chicken or refrigerated ground beef. Um, it always has to be iced, um, and ground beef just it has more of a propensity to grow that bacteria because it's ground. And so, therefore, it was something that they just said, we don't want to deal with it just because bacteria can grow too easily. So um, that, is a, that is a part of it. But as far as what, I mean, things are always safer if they're frozen. Absolutely, because things cannot grow in the freezer. It won't die. Um, there, are, there is some things that can be controlled by freezing. Like if you want to think about sushi-grade, you know, sushi-grade fish, the way that they take care to make sure that that fish is safe to eat raw is that they freeze it to like super low temperatures. I think it's negative 40. Um, and there's a time and temperature limit that goes hand in hand. You can go warmer, but then you have to, um, have more time. So again, you need to know your product and understand the safety of your product and look into those things, but that is how they do it. But otherwise, um, you can't really make food safer, safer freezing it, but you can keep it safe. And so re refrigeration, again, that, that keeps food safer longer than leaving it on a counter, but your, your product will spoil faster than it would in a freezer. Um, personally, I don't love foam trays. I don't think they're good for the environment. So that is my personal preference to not use foam. Yeah, I, uh, I think about that as well. Um, and well, then, so the only thing other than foam, I mean, really, it's the just cryovacking the package. And if it needs a piece of something under it to stabilize it, there there's other forms of of options. I mean, they're more expensive, but they're also safer for the environment. Yeah, I mean, I think plastics could get to the point where even some of them, you know, that they may not uh, be compostable, but some of them can. They are getting better at certain things, and maybe someday we will see that. That would be that would be a great thing for me. You know, again, there's a difference between how you want, how the public expects to see your product. You know, if you think about steaks um, on those foam boards, 
However, I've in food service, you know, we have steaks that are perfectly vacuum packaged each steak in and of itself. And I don't feel that it wasn't stable. Um, so I, it's like, if you buy that pork, if, when you buy that raw pork one that has that really good shelf life on it and it's, um, it has a much longer shelf life than just buying, you know, cut pork on a foam tray that has plastic over top. Cause again, there's no oxygen in there. So Lisa, one of the things, um, when you say, you know, what the consumers want to see and how that is, I have always been fascinated by the little pad they put under raw meat. I, I find it really weird and kind of gross in some way, but, and I find it, I mean, I'm sure it obviously sops up in case there's excess blood or juices or whatnot, but it seems like that would be a very unsanitary thing, but maybe it's treated in some way. Do you, I mean, what, what is, why do they have that little pad at the grocery, you know, when you go to, you get fresh meat and they put it underneath the meat. Yeah. It's, it's just for the moisture. They do that with fresh produce too. Remember that anything that any good manufacturer, and including uh, the grocery stores, absolutely, any of those pads that they put in there has to be safe for food contact, just like the plastic that goes over top. Um, so you're right. I don't. I don't always love them, especially if they fall out into my pan when I'm cooking my steak. But, right. um, <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, they would they're they're safe they're, they're not allowed to have that be in packaging if it's not safe for food i well, mean i wouldn't eat it but and it's interesting because once you vacuum seal all the juices and stuff tend to not leak out the same way um as it would if you saran wrap it and and put the pads in or if they do it's a little more contained in a package but something i want to point out and it's not everything at Costco or, or Sam's Club, but if everyone notices most of the chicken, the beef, and a lot of those products that aren't cut there on site are all in vacuum package or some sort of modified atmosphere packaging or something like that for all the raw meats. And I think I think you're right, Lisa. I think it's one of those things where as consumers, we've gotten used to seeing it that way and we feel it's more fresh if it's cut and on a styrofoam thing for some reason. It's a mindset. But the reality is, is the safer, better option and fresher meat is actually in a vacuum seal. It stays better longer. It's not exposed to the environment as long. It, it doesn't start doing all the things that meat does once it's been exposed or cut. It doesn't have a knife go through it, which means it hasn't been exposed again, you know, the first time being at the butcher, the second time at the grocery store before it goes into a styrofoam tray. So I think there's a lot of that. And it's not like people get sick on a regular basis off of meat at a grocery store. But I think there's a difference in the quality as well. But that's just my understanding of it and what I prefer. You know, it's it's just one of those things. So I'm not sure what the best option is, but I think as humans, we need to get more used to, one, not using styrofoam because I think it's extremely negative for the environment. But two, even the pads is something we throw away. So we're producing all those. We just need to get more comfortable with the meat being in pre-packaged. It goes right from the butcher, right into that packaging. And whether it's frozen or fresh, it is there and that's just a personal preference of mine it's not something that we have to do but i think overall it's better for the environment and it's probably better for us as consumers if we start getting used to alternative packaging because it is better overall for humanity another Um, thing to 
Yeah, you're right. Another thing I was just thinking about how there's all these new bamboo utensils and things of that nature. And, and that's, I think it's a wonderful thing. Remember too, when you're sourcing your packaging, that you have to treat it like you would any ingredient. You need to vet that manufacturer. You can't just buy from someone overseas and think they're doing the right thing. You really need to have guarantees from them that this product, that it is made out of food safe material need to understand what their expectations are for how you're going to handle it. If they're thinking, you know, if this is something that is really ready to be used and, and has like an interior bag that's protecting your packaging from the outer cardboard, you, you're, you should never get packaging that doesn't have some protection between the packaging and the cardboard. Um, or if it is considered a food safe um, surface, you know, you need something to show you to demonstrate that it is food safe and be tracking that. Um, because packaging is, is almost just as important as the food and making sure that the product stays safe. Yeah, so Lisa, I think the packaging conversation is a really big one. And what I'd like to do is, is I know we're about to go in and the next episode will be all about allergens, but I think we're going to release this episode and I'm going to let people email questions and, and direct message questions and things like that or post questions. And we can go back and do another educational episode on packaging directly related to those questions, if that's okay with you. Sure. Just if because, I have them ahead of time. If it's yeah, something I don't know, I can research. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what we'll do. We'll research it ahead of time, and then we'll go through and answer those questions on a later podcast. But, Lisa, thank you again for being on, and thank you, everyone, for listening in. Uh, thank you, Deborah, for co-hosting. I know how much you love those pads. I'll make sure I bring them home <laughs> with every meat you buy. And um, everyone, thank you. If you get value out of this or value out of the podcast, all we ask is that you share it with people, help other people learn and share the stories of everyone. Uh, that's all we ask for. We don't charge anything and we don't have a subscription. So please just pass on the stories and the education and help people who want to be food and beverage entrepreneurs. Thank you, everyone, and have a great day. Bye.